Good morning, afternoon, or evening. Please delete as appropriate. Hello there, and welcome to this episode number 419 of the Material Podcast. I'm Andy Anatko. Florence Ion is still on medical leave. Well, uh, I might have made a tactical error just before the show. I uh, I signed up for Threads, uh, that new like Twitter killer, the latest uh, Twitter killer from uh, Facebook slash Meta. I'm not sure. Actually, there could be two meanings to that. The tactical error could be that I just simply uh, signed up for yet another social media thing or any service that's done by Meta, but also I probably shouldn't have done it like <laughs> just before the show because I'm standing here, sitting here actually, in a larger state of confusion than I would like to be before starting a podcast because I have no idea how the damn thing works. <laughs> it's uh, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it during the show. I'm just, I'm just going to say that I... When when you when you hear shave and a haircut, your brain wants to go two bits, right? You you want to follow that up and 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 finish it off. And so when I see a puzzle in the form of like a user interface or like a method methodology or for frame of thinking that it seems as though it should make some sort of sense, but it doesn't. It's a puzzle that I kind of want to grapple with and. I should, I should be grappling with things like, hey, are my levels correct? That sort of thing. So now that that means I've got, in the past year, uh, my uh, my faith in Elon Musk's uh, uh, <laughs> guidance of Twitter has led me to sign up for no fewer than three different Twitter alternatives. I signed up for Blue Sky just uh, three or four weeks ago, about a month ago, uh, our friend and colleague Florence Island was nice enough to give me an invite code. And I've, I was enjoying this more than I was enjoying Mastodon because Mastodon, it really felt like uh, going to a comic book convention in the eighties. Like if you've only been to like comic book conventions, sci-fi conventions, like in the two thousands, uh, hold on to that memory hold on to that thought because they're lovely they're family friendly it's like it's like a parade it's like a festival it's wonderful oftentimes though the conventions that i went to in the 80s were really really quite sad indeed it, it was like <laughs> you, you it basically was a magnet for only one type of personality one type of person I was one of those people. So I I don't I don't mean to be denigrating myself and saying that oh my god it was like a thousand people exactly like me. Uh I mean that that's not going to be any kind of a treat. I assure you. I uh, I spend all day every day with myself. I would like to change it up every now and then. And so seeing 999 999 more people like me is not what's going to get me to pay $10 to be in that uh, Howard Johnson's ballroom to full of uh, full of uh, old moldering pulp, and here I'm not talking about the people like me. I'm talking about the actual comics. Yeah, it's <laughs> I, I seem to be denigrating Mastodon. What I mean is that you, it's it's not for. It doesn't seem to be like a playground for people to share fun and funny things and weird experiences and just to sort of relax and cool cool down and enjoy the sunshine, so to speak, of, of social media. It really does seem to be, well, uh, I adjusted the key bindings for Emacs as I normally do because I'm not a Vi man. I'm, a, I'm an Emacs man. Ever since I was using uh, Elm and Pine, 
Uh, however, I was finding that because I was using this new uh, 10 key keyboard. Uh, yeah, see, it's like it's not as bad as that, but it's we're asked when I go to Blue Sky. Maybe it's uh, maybe it's because there are, I think, only about 100,000 people on Blue Sky right now because it's still in beta. And everybody there truly knows somebody else because uh, there are very, very few. You, you get very, very few invites as a member of uh, as, as a user of Blue Sky. So you tend to choose the people that you're going to enjoy having on that site. So most of the people it, it was mostly for me. Uh, like Twitter, but imagine that only the people I really, really like are in my feed. <laughs> uh, and and because it also it's not pushing content that you don't like on there. So it's it's it was a it's a pretty fun and funky place. I don't know what Threads is about. I think that Threads is going to be mostly about the numbers. It's going to be about Meta really sticking it to Elon Musk and saying, "Oh, we've got this opportunity to scoop up all the Twitter users." Now that before uh, every every user of Twitter that's pulling the eject handle to try to parachute up before this thing absolutely craters into the landscape, maybe we can collect several millions of those people. And darn if they aren't right because it's been out for less than a day as I speak this and they've already uh 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 <laughs> They've already they've already proudly said that oh we've already got ten million uh, we've already got ten million people signed up so let's see how many of those people actually stay but so but there is actually Google related uh, Twitter content that I'm going to start off with that so you probably heard that last week the latest I don't know Elon did not get a cookie or something at the time when he was supposed to have a cookie and as a result. He declared that he's going to be at war against people who are scraping Twitter for content. Uh, no more, no more. I'm tired of people who have $150 billion like myself being forced to be, <laughs> to be abused by uh, app creators that are making about $50,000 a year off their apps. No more, no more. I, I, I cry for freedom here. I'm going to snap my chains here. And so they he made the announcement that temporarily at least – they're going to be putting limits on how much uh, content that people can consume without being logged in, that they're not going to be showing any content whatsoever to people who are not logged in. He, it's like, like any Elon Musk edict. You can be sure that it was, <laughs> he came up with this idea at like nine thirty seven AM. He issued it as a, as a papal bull to the entire Twitter staff two minutes later and forgot about it like four minutes after that because it was very, very badly implemented. It caused a lot of things to break, a lot of things not to work. But it was also interesting because it gave us an insight into how much of Twitter search, how, how much of Twitter's, uh, Twitter content is available to Google search without necessarily being logged in, without having to actually be a logged in user. We talked about this a little bit last week, so that's why this is being filed under a follow-up. When the uh, the temporary the temporary temporary protest on Reddit taking down so many of its most popular subreddits had an effect upon Google Search, and that it was it kind of shed light on the fact that Google Search relies on Reddit for a lot of its most valuable information, most its most valuable search results. So, uh, Search Engine Land did a check and reported that there was a sixty percent drop in Google Search results from Twitter while this policy was in effect. Um, now. Google pays Twitter for access to the firehose, meaning that they don't have to go through like APIs. They actually get every single uh, they can get access to every single tweet that actually transacts on that network. But during a certain period of time, it seems as though uh, Google search could only access 
active tweets, things that have been recently posted during uh, during the past 24 hours, 48 hours. It had totally lost access to all historic tweets. Their uh, screenshot, Search Engine Land, showed about 140 million tweets that were uh, available. Uh, and I did – so I uh, – the, and uh, reporting that before then, they had access to about 400-something million tweets. I did I did my own check. And found that I was seeing about 600 million and was wondering what this was all about. This, But this is because the, they, they wrote this report while <laughs> during the first like 24 hours, 48 hours of the switchover. Whereas now it's I was checking that out on uh, July 5th, about three or four or five days later. So clearly this, again, this was a temporary thing as Elon Musk or Elon Musk, whatever his brain was telling him to do that day, uh, had, uh, had, actu- had actually enabled. And... But it does it does show off that boy, it shows off a vulnerability to Google search they hadn't really considered. Like, what if because of incidents like this, like what Reddit did, what what Reddit did, what Twitter did, it caused some services to understand how much they are contributing to the value of Google search, and caused Twitter and Reddit and all these other companies to try to figure out how to paywall Google's indexing. You know, to say, you know what, we decided that we don't we're not quite so much of a fan of this open <laughs> open web. If you want to actually be able to access us and put us, access our content and our users' content and put into search results, we're going to have to negotiate how much you're going to pay us to do that. Above and beyond simply having access to APIs or 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 the firehose. Like I tend to rely on Google Search to search Twitter and Instagram and Tumblr. Like I don't go to Twitter and use their search tool or Instagram and use their search tool because Google search is actually better and it doesn't try to steer me to someplace else. That's more strategically uh, important for Instagram to steer me towards Uh, Instagram recently, at least on the web, when you do a search, it will only show you like nine, (laughs) nine search results. And whereas it used to have two tabs or two sections for here's the most recent and here's the most popular. Great. That's what I was looking for. It's not useful to me or else I could still get access to that with Google search. And frankly, it's also above and beyond how good those search results can be. I've been trained to go to Google search bar whenever I need to find information. It's almost Pavlovian. It's like, this is where, this is what I click on whenever I need to find something on the, on the web. And so it's kind of, it's kind of valuable. And uh, it's not as though Google has been on the sidelines for this. Like I said, Google does pay for access to the Twitter firehose. They're also one of the very first organizations to sign up for Wikipedia's commercial access plan when they developed that as when Wikipedia developed that as a way of monetizing and, and supporting the platform. But what if Wikipedia said, you know what? We've been putting all these like, please, please, please donate to us banners on top of every single every single Wikipedia page where this is this is no good for identity. It makes no sense that we need to do fundraising when we're so important to Google users. So we're going to increase our our fees tenfold just for you. It's I don't know if they'd ever do that, but and I don't know if uh, any of these companies would play that kind of chicken with Google because they are they are the concierge the portal to the to the entire web but i don't know maybe i'm affected by the fact that at this moment i'm in the the middle of reading a biography of mickey rooney stick with me it makes sense it this is my my chosen trashy summer reading it's not a scandal book it's actually very very well researched by someone who does a lot of biographies but oh my god when you're looking at the life of mickey rooney it you can't help but (laughs) it can't help but be trashy all right 
it's uh he's he's had quite a life <laughs> quite a life and it's the same sort of vibe that uh that like wikipedia might have had like uh mickey rooney was uh mickey his his movies at for a time were keeping mgm studios afloat for years and years and years all the while he was being paid just a contract salary that was very very good for the time but it was fixed despite uh, the, the success or failure of, of the films that he made. And they were all insanely successful. They're like, they cost peanuts to make because they weren't like really high quality epic stuff. And they made millions and millions and millions of dollars. He was, he was like the, the Vin Diesel. He was the fast and the furious guy where it, it was, it was, it was a cash machine. And he never leveraged that importance. He never basically said, hey, guess what? I know we have this contract, but you are the CEO of this company and you have to, to answer to your investors. And what are you going to say to your investors when you say that, oh, by the way, my studio could have made $15 million more this year, but uh, Mickey Verney asked for one-tenth of that and I refused to give it to him because screw him. But he never he never was able to do that. Supposedly, Jimmy Cagney did something like that with his studios saying, Hey, I want, I want $5 million right now. Or else I'm, I'm sitting out until you give me $5 million in cash. And he sat out for like six months, eight months until the board of directors basically told the CEO, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> we are, you are, you, he's, he's making way more than $5 million for us. And so how much do you, do you like your job? So, it, so I have to I have to think that sometimes you have people who are willing to sit on the sidelines and say, guess what? It's not really important to us as Wikimedia, as Wikimedia that that the Google search has our has our has access to to our stuff. We, it's more important to us that we get ourselves as funded as well as Harvard University so that we don't even need to take in a penny from anybody at any time ever because we've got so much money in the bank. And we're so well funded. Uh, but let's get back to the book because reading this book, oh my God, what a great choice for, for, if you want trashy beach reading, reading this book just is giving me whiplash. Okay. Cause like page after page first, I will see something that makes me feel genuinely sorry for Mickey Rooney, like how he was exploited, how he never had a childhood, even way before, like from the age of like one or two, he was literally on stage in vaudeville before the age of two because he had vaudeville parents who were in a very very horrible marriage and you'll say oh that's that's terrible and then and then when he got into mgm like uh, let me let me tell you this he was his so his name was originally joseph yule jr and that's not a big surprise oh well he's so they changed his name for 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 movies for celebrity okay (laughs) get this he's like five, six years old. He's Joseph Yule Jr. His big break is to play the character of, uh, play the part of a character called Mickey Maguire, who at the time was uh, a fictional character, but like a star of uh, Tunerville Trolley, whatever, whatever a huge, hugely, hugely popular comic strip of the day was in the, in the early thirties. And so they got the rights, a very, very small nickel and dime movie studio, got the rights to do a series of, of, of like, our town, our kids, whatever, the uh, 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 shorts based on these kid characters. And so he became a star. Uh, and so <laughs> when the studio, again, this nickel and dime studio decided that, gee, we're paying like the creator of this comic strip, like a thousand dollars for every one of these shorts. Cause that's part of our licensing agreement. We would like to not have to pay that anymore. Uh, Cause that's a thousand bucks. And 
<laughs> let let him sue. And so <laughs> the head of the studio, along along with uh, Mickey, along with Joseph Yule Jr.'s mother, agreed to change Joseph Yule's name to Mickey Maguire, so that. <laughs> The studio could conceivably say that, oh, no, you can't prevent this at this young actor from being billed by his legal name his, and his mom. His mom changed the family name to McGuire as well. And then like when uh, when the studio decided to stop making these to stop making these shorts and uh, the new newly fabric fabricated uh, legally named Mickey McGuire wanted to go or his mother wanted to take him on to vaudeville as this big movie star who and and phil uh, and phil theaters the head of the studio said no 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 no. we own the name mickey mcguire and so that went into court and so he they named they changed his name to mickey rooney under the protest of the studio who said they shouldn't even be able to uh, to call him mickey anymore that's how bad things got okay but then you get to the section like i'm i'm sort of in the middle of the middle to the end of the section where he's working for mgm and he, and he's, his first wife was Ava Gardner, and he's t- and the the book I think was written uh, shortly after Mickey Rooney died. So I'll, if any quotes that they have from Mickey Rooney himself come from his own autobiographies, ghostwritten or whatever, or his interviews, and as part of the to lend some background to his relationship with Ava Gardner, they're quoting him with things that he was saying. And they were just. Disc- Disgusting. Like they were, he was, he was talking in, ex, I don't want to get into it, but it was, it was like, you don't talk about stuff like that. All right. I was like, ew, turn the, oh, he's still talking. Oh my God. He's still talking. <laughs> I mean, even, even in the preface of this book, the preface was written by somebody who got like a huge contract in like the sixties or something to write like the first like authorized autobiography or whatever of, or biography of Mickey Rooney. And the he tells so, so the first one, my and so my agent uh, arranged for me to meet with Mickey. He wanted to meet at the racetrack. And as soon as I saw him, he needed to borrow $600 from me <laughs> to pay, to pay off a bookie. Uh, and of course he never paid me that back. <laughs> they signed the contract. He took half the money and never actually, <laughs> never actually like sat down for the interviews. He promised to, I'm talking about over and over and over again. Like I used to think that the real life Krusty the Clown was Jerry Lewis, and I and that's I think there's a lot of Jerry Lewis and Krusty the Clown. But now I uh, I'm leaning towards Mickey Rooney, like these having a million get rich quick schemes, a million of these really shady sort of like promotional uh, advertising deals and businesses, and he signed all these he signed any contract just to get money to pay off gambling debts. I think like, hey, kids, imagine him being, imagine Crest of the Crown being like four foot 11 and probably drunk and talking trash about Ava Gardner. My God, Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner was able to land Frank Sinatra, for God's sakes. She went from Mickey Rooney to Frank Sinatra. I think that, I think that Ava deserved better than that. And he did, she did get better than that. She got Frank Sinatra. Ugh. 
Okay, well, for our members, actually, I'm going to be talking about uh, my, today's a members only episode. I'm going to be talking about why it's important for me to save web pages from inside Chrome and why Evernote has forced me to revisit that problem. Why is that relevant here? Well, because that was originally going to be what I talked about here. It was originally going to be this quick bagatelle, but then it got a little bit out of hand, like even more out of hand than talking for five or 10 minutes about Mickey Rooney and Ava Gardner. Ava Gardner, and somehow, like, even the Apollo Lunar Lander got involved in it. So, I decided to move that onto the bonus episode. If you would like to listen to this and other bonus episodes, uh, Flo and I and uh, I alone have been doing these every single week. Go to relay.fm slash material and you'll see a handy dandy link to sign up. And thank you very much for supporting us financially as well as with your time. But let's get on to the regular episode. Uh, so here's what we're going to be listening to, what, you're, what I'm going to be talking about. Uh, first of all, Canadian news. It's about to be blocked by Google. And I got to say... I'm all for that because it's mostly stories for about socialized medicine, uh, you know, universal health care, rational gun control. They really bum me out, especially, you know, this July 4th week where I have to reflect on. I, I love I love America, love the United States, proud to be American, but the, the gun control thing and the universal health care thing. It 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 uh, it's it, those those would be swell. Uh, next, uh, the, the, the bad news about the next set of topics is that, uh, Google has quietly announced that it is going to grab everything it can possibly find on the web everywhere to train its AI systems with. Uh, but the good news is that that's kind of okay because, uh, they're also going to be launching the second thing where they're going to try to get its artificial intelligence models to uh, forget what it knows. Don't know how they're going to make that work. Everclear uh, tends to do it for, for me. Uh, at least temporarily. Um, I don't know if the AI can uh, can understand uh, shame and self-delusion, which is the thing that happens after I forget with Everclear. I'm just joking. I've never had Everclear. I, I, I don't have that con- kind of constitution. But we'll get, into, right, we'll get into all of that right after the break. Well, Google's love affair with regional governments continues to be all candy hearts and flowers and bouquets and nosegays and stuff. Uh, so yeah, uh, Google has basically told Canada to take off a, I'm sorry, I had to do that because I'm still a big Bob and Bob and Doug fan. Yeah. Uh, so it has to do with Google news. It's an old, old story, but now in new territory. So Canada has followed what a lot of other countries have done and what actually the state of California, the United States is proposing to do, which is to pass legislation that uh, purportedly evens the, evens the playing field between uh, news, news corporations and, uh, and Google's actually kind of Google and Facebook specifically. They, they broadly say uh, inter news intermediaries. It's all based on the idea that Google and Facebook are stealing content and they're causing their for- the fortunes of, uh, of news providers to decline precipitously. They're they're responsible for this, and they should, in some way, be made to pay for this. And so, uh, and so, we see the Online News Act of the Canadian Legislature, which uh, just passed last week. It's, it's filed. It was filed in November of 2021. It took a year and a half to actually make it make it through. Uh, it's described in the legislation as quote an act respecting online um, an act respecting online communications platforms that make news content available to persons in Canada to enact fairness in the Canadian digital news market. And it is very very similar to what we've seen before in Australia and in the EU. It gives news publishers tremendous amounts of legal power to force 
a, again, quote, news intermediary, unquote, like Google, to come to the negotiation table and argue, and to uh, uh, discuss terms for use of the news provider's content. Uh, and that happens if that intermediary, again, Google, is deemed to benefit from, in any way, from this sort of imbalance of power. So you see uh, uh, you see a couple of different <laughs> red flags there. Uh, it's a, an, an imbalance of power. Yeah, but are they responsible for it? And how are they profiting from this? Okay, we'll get into that a little bit later. But le- getting into uh, what this law actually does. So it basically means that uh, they can, I mean, they can, a, a news news uh, corporation can negotiate with Google completely voluntarily, but if Google A, decides that they don't want to talk to them about it, or they negotiate in good faith and suddenly that they Google breaks off negotiations. Now they can basically get the get the Canadian government to come onto their side and force Google back to the table and to continue to uh, and they will uh, the government the government will act as an arbit- as their arbitrator, f- basically forcing Google to come to some sort of an agreement that the news corporation finds palatable or pleasurable. And uh, if for some reason the the uh, the, the uh, news corporation does not enjoy uh, how these things are going, they can use the these they can use the government to browbeat Google into coming back and revising those terms. If Google uh, is paying is paying according to the agreement, but they're not paying enough according to the news corporation, then the government can come after Google. And again, this is not just the the corporation that has this power; it is has the basically. It has the the force and the cudgel of uh, of the full federal government uh, behind them. So there's a set framework for negotiations and government mechanisms for this arbitration, and they're all tilted towards the news company. Uh, it, so long, uh, if they are in any way unhappy, they can make bad things happen for Google. Uh, they're also going to be responsible for uh, collecting fees and penalties for noncompliance. Uh, and again, this is a very, very big deal. This is not something new. Uh, California, again, is moving a similar bill through the, through the legislature. Uh, and there's a lot of problems with this with this law. Again, it is law right now. It's not going to be enacted for another few months, but it is law. Uh, so much because much of it is really contradictory. The law is very broad, covers any use of news content that in any way enhances Google services, including links, including just ranking of search results there that is specifically mentioned as, hey, these are, these are examples of things that are materially of a benefit to Google. And so that means that, hey, you're on the hook for some sort of a fee paid to these news organizations. But the law also, uh, like a paragraph or two later, explicitly says that, well, just because it's a link to a story, that doesn't necessarily mean that the news publisher gets to get paid for it. And a lot of this is uh, essentially, we'll figure this out later, like almost explicitly saying that, yeah, well, I'm going to give you a couple of examples, but we're not going to say that what what constitutes usage, what doesn't constitute usage, what constitutes making profit, what does not constitute making profit. We're going to have the Communications Commission come up with these ideas later on. They'll figure out later. It'll be fine. Yeah. How this? How how frustrating is this? How, how frustrating is it when there are rules that are, seem to be arbitrarily drawn that there's no way to possibly comply with them because as soon as somebody thinks that somebody who has uh, power at the other end of the stick thinks that you were violated it, they can essentially say that, yes, you did. <laughs> you owe me money. Uh, you owe me reparations. That's really, really, really tough to deal with. Um, also, I want to wonder, does this also apply to using content to train artificial intelligence models? 
don't know. So Google has been, as always, been trying to work with Canada, or at least trying to have a say or trying to have an influence that doesn't really make things as bad for Google as it could possibly be. So now that the bill is actually law, Google is saying that, okay, well, Bill, this bill is completely unworkable. And as a result, later on this year, all links to Canadian news sources are going to disappear from Google search results, Google News briefs, and Google Discover products inside Canada. You'll, you'll still be able to get at them in, uh, outside of the country, but inside Canada, Canadians are not going to be able to see this stuff. Uh, and also, uh, Google has the Google News Showcase. This is something they came up with a few years ago, partially as an olive branch to the news industries. Uh, it's a way of essentially giving news providers, like individual news providers, like their own little bit of screen real estate within Google sources, search results and Google News that they specifically can control. It's not just Google scraping something off of a off of a news site and boom, reformatting and plucking it somewhere. So they can put their own uh, content in there. They can put their own trackers in there. And so they're saying that nope, well we're not gonna we're, we're not gonna enable that. We're not gonna be running that inside Canada anymore. Uh, we're gone. We're we're gone. That's that's gonna be it. Um, Meta and Instagram. Uh, they announced the exact same thing last week and Canada showing that, look, we, we live in the tundra. We, we, we fight wildlife. We, we, we got bears everywhere. We're not just going to sit back and take this. Uh, so the Canadian government announced that they are no longer going to buy any ads on Facebook or Instagram anymore. So don't know if that's going to be just the first salvo or, or, or that's basically a symbolic thing they're going to be going through. Uh, certainly they're going to find a way, they're going to find a way to make their displeasure at Google known. So uh, what does Google have to say all about this? Well, uh, Chris Turner, vice president of government affairs, government affairs and public policy uh, has a post on the, on the Google keyword blog. Uh, I'm going to quote here. Whether it's Bill C-18 in Canada or proposed laws in other juris jurisdictions, when efforts to support journalism conflict with the core principles of the open web and undermine our products, we have to adjust how we operate. And uh, then he goes on to paint a picture of saying, hey, we're not just being jerks here. We're not being arbitrary here. This is, this is, uh, this is how we consistently behave not in result, not uh, in resistance to just any sort of, uh, uh, new law that controls what Google can do with news content or even uh, uh, forcing us to, to pay money for it. We, th it's, uh, this is a basic principle at stake. We think that this is, this is, in, this is un untenable and also in violation of the principles of the open web. And so they're basically trying to make that statement by talking about how they've been dealing with this kind of thing internationally. They're saying that they did oppose a similar law in Australia, as I mentioned before, but they do note that there's differences here that as, uh, uh, as it was implemented in Australia, the law also considers the importance of that news intermediary, i.e. Google to the general public. And as such, Google actually has not been affected at all by it. Um, he also rather ominously mentioned that, uh, there, that uh, Google has levied a, a similar death penalty, <laughs> uh, similar to what they did in Canada. They did that to Spain in 2014, and they only lifted it last year, in 2022, and only because si uh, Spain had signed on to uh, a, an EU uh, copyright directive. Uh, 2019, the EU basically passed uh, some directions on copyright that basically said that uh, linking two stories is not a violation of copyright creating small extracts is not a, also a violation of con, not a violation of contract uh, copyright. It's all fair game. Once they agreed separately to be uh, beholden to that 2019 EU directive, suddenly this all became like uh, 
became moot. And so, so basically they kept this death penalty in fact in place for eight years. So Canada is not to think that, Oh, well we can just sort of wait them out there. They need us more than we need them. No, I think that's the clear message. And he also quite naturally used this blog post to defend how super awesome Google is for news. Oh my God, they're so ungrateful uh, because Google drives traffic to news sites for free, might I add. Uh, they also operate the Google News Initiative, which is pretty cool. These are, uh, this is a uh, uh, initiative where it, Google is, off, is offering and creating digital tools and training and resources to strengthen journalism worldwide. So if you have a very small newsroom and you don't understand, you don't understand how to do, how to use SEO, uh, how what digital tools are available to you, uh, how to basically analyze your audience analyze you create uh, more traffic blah 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 uh, they've got all these resources for you as a matter of fact if you go to the website you start off by saying oh where am i from and then we'll start to tell you well here's things that we can do for you in this in this area in this region and it doesn't really necessarily it doesn't come across as your your best solution is to start using google ads and let google put trackers on everything you do it's actually pretty clean and they've been doing this for for a number of years now so okay fair play uh, they also, uh, the blog post is also mentioning Google News Showcase once again, as here's an, another example of how Google is helping news companies to monetize their content even further. And uh, that might not be the best example. Uh, so Google News Showcase, News Showcase was launched in 2020. It's currently in 20 countries. It is finally launching in the United States this summer uh, with uh, more than 150 participating news organizations. So why was the U.S. Uh, or news uh, industry long, uh, long holdouts here. Well, because the, the negotiations to how they're going to participate and how they're going to be rewarded for this, uh, really, really drug on, uh, September, 2022, there was an article, uh, I think in the financial times where that said that, uh, according to their sources, Google was offering, uh, $7 million and the news orgs, well, they were thinking more of the lines of, I don't know, 300 million. They definitely had a gap that they had to sort of navigate there to find some sort of a middle ground. There's also a couple of uh, a couple of uh, news corporations that are like, hey, look, this is not it's not as though uh, Google News Showcase is such a big win for us. Yes, it does give them a patch of real estate inside uh, Google News and Services that they essentially that will be their own websites, if you can imagine, like a, a little a little postcard size version of their website where they can have their own scripts running, so to speak. They can have their own analytics and stuff. They have their own monetization going. But uh, the people who are complaining are saying that Google puts so many constrictions upon what they can do inside that space that it's practically meaningless. So at least that's that's their argument. It might be their attempt to get leverage and get better uh, uh, get better compensation for it. And technically, they might have a point there. I frankly don't have the ability to really check it out because uh, I don't understand the, I don't understand that part, those parts of the technologies. I've had it explained to me, and so it seems to be kind of fair to me. But I would I'm not a news provider, am, am I? I? No, I write for news providers. I'm I'm, I'm at the I'm at the I'm at the, the the jangly end of the leash, not the not the comfortable padded leather end of the end of the leash. Um, also, it should be mentioned that Google already has deals in place with big news corporations. It's not, again, it's not as though they won't negotiate. Uh, so Google has deals in place with News Corp, uh, owners of the Wall Street Journal, owners of, the, of Fox News, and the New York Times. Uh, each of these deals is worth about $100 million a piece per year. This according to a story in the Wall Street Journal, which again, a stro- uh, owned by News Corp. 
honestly, I, I don't follow the logic of these kinds of laws. That doesn't mean that I'm 100% on the side of Google here, but I listen to the arguments and they just don't make much sense to me. Even if we throw out the most egregious of them, which is that, hey, you, you link to my site, you owe me money. Like, wait, I'm, give, I'm driving traffic to you. How do I owe you money to make, to make your site and your content more visible and increase your audience? Uh, but my problems with it are that they're usually framed as though Google is just republishing content wholesale. They're just grabbing entire news stories and just putting it on their own sites. Uh, and essentially making sure that people never leave the Google search landing page. They never have to visit the wall street journal. They never have to wish they don't, they never have to, to visit the Dedham, the Dedham transcript uh, webpage in Dedham, Massachusetts, because, Hey, they're all being diverted uh, directly into Google traffic. They're stealing their audience. No, that just doesn't happen. Again, there are summaries that get kind of entice you to go uh, to the Dedham transcript to find out more about how the Dedham wildcats junior varsity volleyball. I don't know. I don't know the name of the, the two. They, 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 the, it was a nearby town when I was growing up, but I, I, I was not a sports kid, so I never actually played them. They never became like my personal rivals. I digress. So what, where, where's their justification? And although the Google blog explainer, I mean, it's obviously self-serving. I do agree with the central point that any law that can apply to merely that so broad that it can uh, apply to just linking to content or just putting a piece of content higher in search results than other content that's inherently vague and stupid and bad. It just, this is, it makes me, it makes me think about there, the, the, the driver of this is much less to save the news industry or to reinstate a sense of fairness. It really makes me think about huge news corporations like News Corp using their wealth and using their political influence to get some laws passed in their favor to basically turn on a faucet of money, regardless of whether it's justified or not, whether they've actually been harmed or damaged by Google. Uh, the idea being that, hey, look, Google's, uh, Google and Facebook, they're, they're, uh, they're trillion dollar companies. They can afford to, to put more money into the news industry, uh, whether they're, whether they've actually committed a crime or not, uh, they can afford it. So we're going to, we're going to turn on those taps. I mean, the stories about this, the, the editorials that they put into the wall street journal and other newspapers, they always cite, Oh, little regional news outlets. They're being killed by Google. There's, there's, here's how many news outlets were shut, were shut down. Here's how many reporters were fired, lost their jobs because of the dastardly Google stealing content. And yeah, but this again is a multi-billion dollar international news corporation that is claiming that, Oh, they're, they're the victims here. I would guess that, the reason why so many local papers are shuttering, the reasons why uh, not only the people who are staffing those papers are losing their jobs, but staff of the papers that are st that are standing by uh, are still being fired. I think it's more about the consolidation of the news industry uh, from a whole bunch of regional like little companies into this tiny, tiny handful of like Gannett and News Corp and others tiny handful of huge national multinational players just deciding that hey why are we operating four newspapers in this geographical area we can basically slam them all into one uh why are we uh, commissioning people to uh, to uh uh why, why do we have a sports writer here when we can probably get people to contribute that kind of content like on their own and just write a script that takes the stuff and and assembles it into <laughs> assembles into a box score or uses google's own ai 
<laughs> or open AI's uh, generative AI to basically turn this into human sounding text that we can then distribute from state to state, region to region. I'm really, really skeptical. I think that I think that uh, the the real reason for this has very, very little to do with Google having a search engine that drives uh, drives traffic to these other sites. It's I've, I've had this conversation before with uh, with sometimes on the air, as a matter of fact, with people who are in the new uh, who uh, like me. Uh, are or were in like the print newspaper industry and i always have to point out that if the changes that the internet wreaked wreaked upon the traditional news news companies newspapers those were things that those are problems that existed before google existed that if you open up a newspaper if you if you got an if you picked up a newspaper from 1998 you know going to order off of ebay or whatever you will see it is thick because it is packed with ads and and there are entire sections categories of ads in those newspapers that don't exist anymore classified ads have gone to craigslist and other places car ads well now people are going to now the uh, car dealers are going to try to advertise on cars.com and other specific pages like that you don't have supermarkets advertising you there you don't have uh, you, you don't have uh they're because they're doing direct mail and they're also doing online advertising Online advertising has basically sucked up or basically supplanted the advertising market that all of these newspapers and many magazines, most magazines, required in order to survive. Now you can you can shift the the discussion over to well, uh, the, Google's monopoly of the ad market, the digital ads market, has prevented regional newspapers from getting together and creating their own ad network uh, and basically recapturing as much of that uh, of that money as they possibly could fair point that's a, also a point that gannett newspapers is making in the courts right now uh, but that that's not the argument that they're making they're basically saying that oh well their presence is sucking uh, sucking content away and sucking readers away that's not really the case or, or, or if it is the case nobody has really demonstrated that as far as i've been able to tell them i'm trying to i'm trying to look i've been trying to find this stuff um ugh. So uh, let's move on a little bit. Uh, kind of related here, though. Um, there was, a, as I said, a blog post from Google explaining all of this. However, I think that I thought that the, the much better, uh, much more compelling defense of Google came from uh, Richard Gingras, who is works for Google as a uh, as the vice president of news. Uh, he was speaking to the world's news media Congress in Taipei, like international conference for, uh, uh, for news media, uh, on the very, very day that Google announced that they were pulling out of Canada in, uh, in uh, reaction to this, uh, I'm going to link to the transcript of his entire remarks because they're all, they are worth reading in its entire, in their entirety. He covers a lot of different topics, but of course he says a lot that's relevant to our discussion today. Uh, and I'm just going to quote him kind of directly. There's a whole section about uh, public policy and press freedom. He's speaking personally here, not necessarily making statements on behalf of Google. Um, and so he asks, what flavor of pre- – after after establishing that, well, we all want press freedom, freedom of the press is very, very important. And that's something that uh, he actually goes out of his way to, out of his way to mention that we, um, we don't we – sh- I don't presuppose that uh, uh, the United States Constitutional First Amendment – protecting the press is necessarily correct for every single country out there. I don't necessarily think that our version of free speech is the version of free speech that works everywhere else. But so he asks a whole bunch of questions here. One of which being is uh, what flavor of press freedom do you want for your society? 
My personal perspective presumes that a truly open and independent press is one where the role of a journalist isn't defined by law and where the independence of a free press can best be accomplished with diverse sources of financial support, not a dependence on one. Is your model of support for press freedom addressed by bargaining codes between the press and specific tech companies? Will bargaining codes fuel change and innovation versus supporting embedded players? Will the outcome be neutral and avoid partisan outcomes? Might bargaining codes create disproportionate distributions similar to copyright structures? Will the process have sufficient transparency to avoid suspicion that the scale of determined indifference has been skewed? Will it undermine the nature of the web as an open ecosystem? I believe that public policy for the direct financial support of the press should not have singular companies like Google in the middle of it. Indeed, I struggle, as I said recently in testimony, in testimony before the Canadian Senate, with the presumed wisdom of any country being comfortable with notable financial support for that country's press being intrinsically linked to a specific private company or companies. And that that's why I wanted to, I really wanted to quote that in in entirety. This really appeals to me. It, it echoes, for instance, why I'm opposed to legalized gambling, for instance, uh, both whether it's a, 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 a corporate casinos or whether it's a state funded lottery, because the state revenues, the, the, the revenues that go to the state from gambling, they're earmarked for education. Okay, that's nice. That's how they get these things passed. But now suddenly your state's educational system is dependent upon this money, which means that you can't hire teachers. You can't keep your keep the heat on inside your schools unless you keep the casinos happy and or unless you keep in the case of a state run lottery, you keep people gambling. Okay, you suddenly can't get rid of this. So that's that's exactly the the point that he's making here, which he's saying that if you're if you're basically saying that you're you can't get local news unless Google is paying for it, like what you are now beholden to this company and this this one company can now essentially control whether the lights are on in this newsroom or not. That's a bad thing. That if you're creating if you're going to all the trouble of creating legislation of creating public policy intended to keep newsrooms open. I'm not, and I don't think that that's a bad thing at all, but if you're doing, if you're going to go to all that trouble, you need to create diverse sources of income, a diverse safety net. Okay. Or else you wind up again in a situation where you can't piss off Google too much because they are providing a very critical 18% of revenue for those local sports stores scores for being able to keep a website running so that the people who's the person who's being paid basically minimum wage to sit through city council meetings and report on who said what uh, and what the shift was uh, on uh, between public statements and private actions in legislators like you can't have that happen like you have to create a comprehensive system uh, if you're going to create a safety net or else it's not a safety net but you, if if it's a safety net where one person is capable of rolling it away at any time that's a marginal factor of safety uh, he also made uh, two closing observations, which again, I'm going to quote in their entirety. First, the I'm making, he said, making two closing observations. First, the relationship between Google and the news industry is wobbling on and off track. It is my hope that it can return to a more collaborative than combative equilibrium. I suggest that would be beneficial as we mutually address the evolution of meds and technology. I don't know what that's, I'm, that's literally what it says, meds and technology over the short, medium, and long term. 
I fear the demands of the news industry are stretching beyond workable for Google. I fear the underlying policy constructs we are seeing, for instance in Canada, will have untoward secondary consequences. I fear that such legislation and the parallel evolution of new AI-driven product models may put in doubt the very viability of a search search engine operating against the open web. I have a hard time seeing how that's a good thing for press freedom or for the long-term benefit of the creation of quality journalism. That's good stuff. Again, re, uh, go to uh, relay.fm slash material for the, sh- for the link to read the entire, uh, entire, entire comments. There was also also Q&A section. However, the, uh, the transcript had not been posted yet. I am very avidly going to be uh, looking around for that too. But first, I'm going to take another break. And then let's talk about how Google is scraping things into their brains and how it hopes to scrape their brains again to get things out of the brains. Stick with me. It's a lot less gross than I'm making it sound. Well, 9to5Google had an interesting story. They caught something very, very interesting in the changelog of, uh, of uh, Google's privacy policy settings or privacy, privacy policy statement. It's either something that was very, very subtle and huge in its possible consequences, or it's just one of those little wordsmithing changes of, uh, uh, of a privacy policy that might mean absolutely nothing. I don't know yet, but it's certainly going to be worth talking about. Uh, first of all, uh, kudos to Google. Uh, they have a privacy policy that looks like it was it was meant to be read. Uh, this is only like the second time in like six months, maybe even a year that I've actually read through it. But the reason you think about I've actually read through it more than once in my life because it's set up very nicely and it's very readable. The other really important feature that they're not legally required to do, but they, they seem to understand is important, is that they have a change log. So that there's actually in the sidebar, click on this uh, this button, uh, or rather this link, and it will show you highlighted changes markup of here is language that we struck out, here's language that we put in highlighted in red with strike throughs in it and highlighted in green. So Gizmodo uh, checked out the uh, privacy change on July 1st. It would seem as though having now read through the entire thing, including the parts that aren't recited by the Gizmodo piece, that the the big mover for the big motivation for all these changes was uh California has made has passed a sweeping personal privacy <laughs> uh set of set of personal privacy laws that originally were set to go into effect on July 1st and now that uh, very very late in the game just a couple of weeks ago they announced that okay well actually we're going to give everybody some more time to comply with it the the law is is in place however People don't have to comply with, or excuse me, I, I think to be specific, there is, there are no, the punishment parts of this law, of violating this law do not go into effect for several months. So uh, most of the changes that have been made to this privacy policy have specific mentions of this law as examples. And now they seem to have been struck out because now, because they, they assumed that on July 1st, when this privacy policy was updated, that they're going to need to start talking about this and now they don't. But however, uh, what we're talking about here is a section that talks about uh, how uh, Google is going to be the the rights and behaviors that Google feels that it's entitled to regarding publicly accessible sources. It's preceded by a section about here's how we're going to be using your personal private data, but it also says that here's what we're going to be doing. Even if you're not, even if you don't have a Google account, if you're on the wild wide wild wide web, here's what we can do. Uh, so it's. Uh, 
they've made a couple of changes that seem to say that whatever that's whatever is publicly accessible on the web we are uh we are declaring the right to scrape it to use it to train our ai models here's specifically what the how what the changes have been made um the the paragraph the one paragraph in question says for example we may collect information that's publicly available online or from other public sources to help train google's language models and build features like google translate or if your business's information appears on a website, we may index and display it on Google services. So they made a few little tweaks. Uh, now, instead of saying Google's language <laughs> language models, it says language. It actually just says Google's AI models. So that's been very, very much broadened. Um, and the feature, the, the line that says, and build features like instead of saying simply Google Translate, they've added uh, Bard and cloud, Bard and cloud AI capabilities. Uh, and also included that as, oh, well, we're going to name these few specifically, but it could be much, much more than that. So like, uh, it's not just limiting to uh, just this one product. Um, so, the, so it now says, for example, we, we may collect information that's publicly available online or from other public sources to help train Google's AI models and build products and features like Google Translate, Bard, and cloud AI capabilities. So a lot of commentators are seizing upon this as oh my god they're suddenly saying that hey look we're entitled to scrape absolutely everything i don't know like 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 i said earlier this could be just uh, acknowledging that we need to be a little bit more open and honest about what we're doing we think that it was implied maybe by what by the earlier version of this text however it can't hurt to be more specific or maybe they've said <laughs> they've noticed okay we absolutely need to cover our butts right now because we have upped the game in a serious way since the last update to this terms of service and we're going to get <laughs> we're going to get hammered if we don't actually put the, we don't we don't establish that we put this out there uh, it's think i think it's very very notable that they didn't put any kind of a blog post out about this that could be just because it is trivial i don't know or it could be that they don't want to really shed, <laughs> shed light upon it they don't want to draw people's attention towards it um so that's why i'm kind of on the fence about this like web scraping is absolutely nothing news uh, is absolutely nothing new and the and the other thing is that it has always been part of uh I don't know, part of your basic understanding of the web that if you put, if you publish this for public consumption, meaning it's not behind a paywall, it's not behind a password, you didn't put it in pig Latin or anything like that. You're basically saying that anybody can read this or even anything can read this like web scraping, web spidering has, is nothing new. It's been, it's been decades in the decades in the making. So, which is why, uh, it's kind of it's kind of amusing when there was a really really famous uh, famous example of cluelessness. The CEO of uh, the new uh, of a company that was naming itself in television. They bought all the uh, assets, IP assets, to the original like Mattel Intellivision game console, and they're going to make this new incredible new version of the Intellivision that was supposed to be released three years ago. It is such a clown show you should really google <laughs> google and television amico this console is going to be called the amico and so because of their own incompetence or maybe it's an honest mistake they accidentally took all of their developer do developer documentation documentation and put it in a publicly accessible part of their website and so 
it was there and they took it down like soon thereafter, but it was up there uh, long enough for the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, to have captured a copy of it. And Ars Technica found it. And it's because it's not as though the, the Intellivision Amico console was a huge, huge high expectations is going to be the story of the year, but it was kind of a curiosity. And it was the only, it was the only information that uh, could be found about it for, ever since like the, a, a two year old, big, huge blowout announcement. And so they, 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 uh, they read the entire, uh, the entire set of documents. They learned a whole bunch about the limitations of this console, a whole bunch about its business model that, was even it was causing people to be even less sure about its success than before and the ceo basically accused ours technical of hacking and using their own copyrighted private material and oh we're gonna sue you we're gonna sue you and ours simply had to say about what you put this up you put this publicly on the web the, the the internet archive was not would not have been able to find it if it had not been available publicly you are you know you know about as much about the about the law as you do about shipping a game console on time so yeah i, I it's hard to be it's hard for me with my perspective to get really upset about the news that google is going to take any piece of information they find on the web and use it for pretty much any, because they've got these AI models that are starving for training. They're going to be finding training wherever they can find it. Um, it does point to uh, an evolving, a still evolving question, which is should companies like OpenAI and Google pay the creators of this content for the contributions that they are inadvertently making to help train these AI models and uh, there is a there was a recent piece in the Financial Times. Uh, the the Financial Times has sources that say that Google, as well as Meta and other companies, they actually have been negotiating with news publishers, for instance, over how to compensate them for using their content to train AI bots. Um, this is this is going to become I, this is a deeply fascinating legal topic, and it's going to be even more interesting as as it continues to be discussed. It's it's hard to know. Like if I if I if I were to take a piece of artwork from one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite artists, uh, let's say let's say Amanda Connor. I, I love Amanda Connor's art, comic book art and illustration art. Uh, so obviously, if I take a piece of her art and like trace over it and just basically change some of the heads, change some of the figures, and uh, create it as a brand new purported as a brand new piece of art that I've created myself, that's obviously theft. Okay, she's going to get triple damages and <laughs> not be my friend if, if we were to ever meet, uh, we, uh, if I and her husband ever, were ever meet, meet socially. Uh, actually, we have met. We're not, we're not, we have a parasocial relationship in which like, I get to see them like eh, a couple times a year. Again, I, 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 I underscore parasocial. I should probably edit this out. I should probably should not have gone there. But you know what I, you know what I mean, where it's like uh, – uh, we have a nice conversation like a couple times a year, sometimes a couple of conversations online. Doesn't mean we're friends. Doesn't mean we have a personal relationship. But it's one of those very, very pleasant parasocial relationships uh, that uh, cause me to when <laughs> when Meta <laughs> Facebook has a brand new version of Twitter, it's like, oh, I've had some really, really nice conversations with people I barely know on social media. I'm going to set up for this as well because maybe I'll also meet new people and have random conversations that I really, really like. But this, however. If I'm using her artwork to help train an artificial intelligence, even not necessarily to create artwork that looks like Amanda Connors, that's a long discussion about how much Google would uh, would owe Amanda Connor, if anything. 
there's one of my favorite cartoonists online uh, by the name of Sarah Anderson. I think that if you saw an example of her cartooning, you would instantly recognize her style. It is unique, not just the art style, but also how she paces a four panel comic and how she lands jokes and stuff like that. And uh, last year, when generative art was uh, really starting to become a problem, she wrote a very, very interesting op-ed that explained the scale of the problem when uh, AIs get uh, generative art, uh, uh, machine language systems, get trained on your style of art. And now people can generate artwork that looks like yours, but is not yours. Because she discovered that uh, there are people that were basically saying, uh, draw a four panel cartoon uh, that explains how uh, how all liberals uh, need to be thrown into a wood chipper and die, and there are dogs laughing at them because they're so stupid, and do that in the style of a four-panel Sarah Anderson cartoon. And this, not uh, obviously, number one, it's a gut punch to her because she doesn't believe that way, and someone is is, is exploiting her art, her art style with the help of a large corporation to create this horrible, horrible, offensive piece of content. But also as, as a, in a practical point of view, now maybe when people, maybe this is the first time people have seen her style of art. So when they go to her Instagram, Sarah Anderson uh, on Instagram, they're going to think, Oh, she's that person who does those horrible, horrible, ultra radical, anti-liberal cartoons. She's awful. I'm going to report her and have her taken off Instagram, or I'm certainly not going to subscribe to her. I'm going to tell people, and if I see people who have their, her cartoons, I'm going to give them what for, you know, it's, it opens up the question of, you have these two different problems. Like number one, uh, if open AI or, uh, Google's art generators learned about cartooning in general by seeing 500 of her, of, of Sarah Anderson's comic strips, you could argue that, the value of that contribution is tangible, but impossible to define. Like how much did the AI learn from her 500 strips versus the other 2000, uh, uh, Charles Schultz, uh, Snoopy and Charlie Brown strips that, that it saw. However, uh, what is impossible to negotiate away is the idea that she is being harmed by the ability of just general people to create brand new comic strips that are, that could be confused with her own, but say things that she would never ever do or not have a level of quality that she would, that she would assure to. Doesn't she have a right to be forgotten, so to speak by the AI? So yeah, it's, it's hard. Uh, that's, that's why I, I do think the financial, I hope the financial times uh, doesn't even have part of the story that they're that how aggressively Google is trying to make sure that people who contribute content, excuse me, involuntarily contribute content can have some control and some profit participation in the efforts of their generative AI models. Um, it's not a problem. It's not a problem that was even, con- even, even slightly considered at the time, but it's going to, it's a problem that's going to get worse before it gets better. However, our last story actually kind of addresses this. So there's a new post on the Google research blog, uh, announcing the first machine unlearning challenge. So uh, machine unlearning is, it's an emerging field of data science where it talks, where the, the, the concept is that after a, a language model or an AI model has been taught essentially by being firehosed billions and billions of pieces of information from the web, it can have a lot of stuff that it shouldn't have and create 
uh, a whole bunch of uh, understandings that are not useful to whatever its mission is. Uh, so it is very, very valuable to be able to get this fully trained AI to unlearn selective things that it has learned that it should never have seen or never have uh, tried to comprehend in the first place. Um, it has a whole bunch of different goals uh, to develop uh, machine unlearning systems, protecting privacy, for instance, to make sure you know, so to make sure that hey, look, if it saw uh, ten, if it saw ten thousand uh, yearbook photos. The fact that it learns your face doesn't necessarily it, there. There's uh, there's still like a, a privacy vulnerability where, uh, just as there are people who are learning how to use these AIs productively via prompts, there are other uh, penetration tests being made to try to figure out how can I get it to give up its secrets. It learned it saw a lot of things that maybe a normal person could not get access to. How can I get it to unwind all that stuff and spit it back out again? Um, more obviously, there are things like removing misinformation, removing outdated data, uh, removing data that's harmful or has been manipulated to mislead people. Uh, and also, most important of all, addressing biases. That there's there, This is a, a known fundamental problem of artificial intelligence, that it has all the biases of society uh, and biases that are limited to the data that it has been seen, the data that's been shown. There's a, another article that I thought was really fascinating. There's a, there's a digital art, digital artist who has been over the past couple of years trying to map out, uh, the deficiencies of, uh, uh, of mid journey and other art generators in generating uh, faces of black people that, do they get the skin tone right? Okay. Do they get the expressions right? Do they get the hair right? And oftentimes it just doesn't. Uh, that's that's to say nothing of the problems of if I just say uh, I just give me give me a give me a, a photographic looking image of uh, of a robber of a burglar of a carjacker. How likely is it that it's going to say it's going to automatically go for people of color instead of uh, instead of white people? All this sort of stuff. Once you've essentially thrown this stuff into a stew of billions of uh, pieces of data, uh, tr trillions of pieces of data, and let it steep for weeks, months, and years, how do you get that out again? It is not something that has been figured out yet. So Google uh, is uh, basically hosting a competition to advance this field and develop uh, what they're calling unlearning algorithms. I'm going to quote from the uh, the Google research blog post here. We've teamed up with a broad group of academic and industrial researchers to organize the first machine unlearning challenge. The competition considers a realistic scenario in which, after training, a certain subset of the training images must be forgotten to, pr to protect the privacy or rights of the individuals concerned. Uh, and so as part of this competition, uh, the people who want to participate in it are given a uh, data set of uh, several thousand AI generated faces and a list of here are the faces that you must uh, and the, the trained AI model. And here are the faces that you must get it to forget to lose um, it outlines the challenges of the problem that uh, in general uh, to an unlearning algorithm has to protect the integrity and the usefulness of the overall model. It has to be efficient. It has to. Uh, be able to be run so uh, so trivially that there's no reason to not run this stuff once you have data that needs to be extracted or removed from this. Uh, 
the other point is that they're partially looking to at least establish, if they don't find good algorithms, at least establish protocols for being able to test and evaluate unlearning algorithms. That currently there's no way to compare two algorithms uh, and see uh, and see how well they work. There's no standard set of metrics uh, so that they can discover what one algorithm does well, what another one does poorly. Uh, so uh, the goal of the competition is twofold. First, by unifying and standardizing the evaluation metrics for unlearning, we hope to identify the strengths and weaknesses of different algorithms through apples-to-apples -apples comparisons. Second, by opening this competition to everyone, we hope to foster novel solutions and shed light on open challenges and opportunities. Now, another piece of information. This competition is going to be running on Kaggle uh, between July and September. What is Kaggle? I did not know. I had to search this. Um, it struck me as the sort of like um like maybe a term that is used by car mechanics to describe like when they take apart a transmission case or an oil pan and they find a collection of loose metal parts like oh phone the pan is all full of kaggle i think that uh, this engine is just completely shot um or uh the other thought was that maybe it's like one of those you ever been shopping you see like particularly at whole foods and you see this like seven dollar box of cereal and it looks like the company like started off by picking out a stock photo of people who look like they would spend $7 on a box of cereal. And then they like threw in a group of ingredients that they thought that those kinds of people would gravitate towards and spend $7 for. Try Kaggle, Kaggle in the morning. It's not just for breakfast anymore. Kaggle. Uh, no, actually, uh, Kaggle is an online community and competition platform for people who work in machine learning and in data science. It's been around since about 2010. Uh, it's been acquired. It was acquired by Google in 2017. So it is a Google uh, service. Uh, and of course, all of Kaggle's original founders, they all left five years after 2017, probably when they could finally cash out. But uh, it does have 8 million users. And all those users are, again, data scientists, developers, and they, they earn points by participating in competitions. There's actually a, a live leaderboard for all the competitions that they participate in. Um, I'm looking at the, on Wikipedia, it says, I shouldn't be making fun of it because Kaggle's competitions have resulted in successful projects such as furthering HIV research, chess ratings, and traffic forecasting. So essentially when there's something that has not been developed yet uh, that involves data science or machine learning, they say, okay, we're going to make it a challenge. We're going to have a reward for people who, who win this challenge because we really need this algorithm to exist. Um, so it's it's good that they're doing this, of course, but it's yet another example, another yet another example of how artificial intelligence was allowed to become a thing before a whole litany of really important open problems were solved and basic guardrails have been set up. So I can't really be too really really happy about this because, uh, as Sarah Anderson would tell you, the importance of saying, "Wow, this machine learning model is totally screwed up. You need to remove this from it immediately." And there's going to be a list of things that are so long that it can't simply look for the output of these algorithms and remove it from human eyes. It needs to be cut off at the source. Nuke it from orbit. That's the only way. Well, that's going to be it. Flo will be back with us in just a few weeks. In the meantime, you can check out what she's up to on her Instagram, where she is, oh, that flow. I am Anatko on Twitter and Instagram and on Blue Sky and now on Threads. You can also hit, hear me on Boston Public Radio at WGBHnews.org or the WGBH News channel on YouTube. And once again, as always, you can help support our show and everything on the Relay.fm network by becoming a member. Head on over to Relay.fm slash material to sign up and gain access to all kinds of special members-only episodes produced by me, me and Flo, uh, and all of Relay's contributors. 
Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening to the show this time. Hope you're going to be listening again next week. Until then, everybody, please have a happy, safe, and healthy seven days. Bye-bye.